0: For two years, twin brothers Chris and Jeff George, along with their friend Derek Nolan, ran the largest pain clinic in the United States. It's not that they were so into helping people with their pain. Really, what they cared about were the profits that they were getting from selling opioids. Florida's laws at the time didn't address the fact that none of these men had any medical training in order to be able to help addicts. They had no training in counseling to help addicts. They were in it because the money was big. And unfortunately, the addictions that these drugs fueled were even bigger. I am your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm really glad that you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I want us to tackle this story from the world of true crime and then see what spiritual and safety takeaways we can find there. I believe that every Christian has a calling to be what I call a different kind of PI, not a private investigator like me, but a person of impact. So stick around because we're going to talk about a practical way that you can do that. This is Season 4, Episode 19. The book I chose this week is American Pain, How a Young Felon and His Ring of Doctors Unleashed America's Deadliest Drug Epidemic by John Temple. Really excited for you to hear our guest this week, Christina Dent. She's the founder of End It for Good. She's also a writer, a TEDx speaker, and a perpetual question asker. When she and her husband became foster parents, she really got an up-close look at the realities of addiction and drug use and what a far-reaching impact each of those things has on our drug laws. And this became a catalyst for months of reading, asking questions, and listening as she tried to reconcile her beliefs as a Christian with all of the pain and suffering that she was seeing. We'll talk to her really soon, but first, let's investigate this week's case. The South Florida pain clinics weren't created to help people deal with pain as much as they were really designed to take advantage of anybody who was an oxycodone addict. Like I said, Florida didn't regulate this industry very tightly, and the three men that we talked about took full advantage of that. But the FBI was keeping an eye on them. They had them under surveillance because prescription drug abuse was reaching epidemic proportions. Somebody needed to do something to address it. The trouble was, and really it still is, that we just can't all agree on what the right or best approach is. By 2010, more people were abusing pain pills than any illegal drug except marijuana. Oxycodone, and I didn't know this, is basically just synthetic heroin. It's legal though, you can get it with a prescription. So shady doctors looking for a quick buck worked for the South Florida clinics They would write quick prescriptions with very little thought to the welfare of their patients. They supplied drugs for literally hundreds of patients every day. And at one point, the clinics that we're talking about were making up to $50,000 every single day. The clinics eventually grew so big that they actually moved into a former bank building, in part so that they would have massive vaults because they needed something to hold the hordes of cash that they were generating. And most of that money came from the fact that they sold the drugs themselves right on the premises. So they were getting money from patients coming in to see a doctor. Then that doctor's prescribing these opioids, and they are filling that prescription right on site. Florida law allowed that as long as a doctor was associated with the clinic and prescribed the drugs. So even though Chris was technically the owner, they would hire doctors some even part-time that came in maybe one night a week, to see as many patients as they could fit in the building and write them scripts. Now, Chris and Jeff and Derek realized pretty quickly that the majority of their customers weren't really coming there for pain. They were coming to get high. The three actually advertised on Craigslist to hire doctors, so that tells you the level of quality control that they were concerned about. They promised the doctors that they could make up to $400 an hour, as long as they had a DEA license so they could prescribe controlled substances. Patients would come from out of state to get these meds, especially if the states they lived in happened to control the distribution of narcotics more tightly than Florida did. There were a significant number of people who came in to buy meds so they could just turn right around and sell them. Everyone, it seemed, was benefiting one way or another except the actual addicts. Overdose deaths due to prescription drugs continued to rise at alarming rates. The American Pain Clinic wasn't helping. After they'd only been in business for about four months, a Florida state health investigator showed up at the clinic. He said that they checked on all doctors who dispensed controlled substances on site. Then a reporter showed up, acting on a tip, and started poking around. Soon, the local police were pulling over patients as they left the clinic. Chris, Jeff, and Derek decided it was time to move. Their new office was larger and had more parking. They decided that it was time to work more professionally so they could avoid the prodding of all these different authorities that were suddenly interested in what they were doing. And they just kept making more and more and more money. It got to the point where the banks were leery of taking in so much money every day when the three tried to deposit it. They actually had to use multiple different banks to hold all of the cash they were generating. That problem was soon forgotten, though, when a DEA agent and several other officials showed up again. After being questioned, one doctor quickly agreed to give up his DEA registration in exchange for a promise that he wouldn't be prosecuted. But nothing actually happened to the clinic itself. Not yet. Chris decided to change the name of the clinic to American Pain and he hired someone else to manage the clinic, someone with a squeaky-clean reputation. Derek was not happy because that's the job he had been doing. The brothers were feuding, and the new location wasn't working out. Other businesses near them had been complaining, and so they were asked to leave when their short lease ran out. Then a young man from Kentucky named Stacy died from an overdose of opioids that he got at American Pain. His mother, girlfriend, and his girlfriend's mother were bewildered as to why he had gone to a place in Florida called American Pain to get the pills that his regular doctor would no longer give him. They decided that they needed to work together to find out what had happened to their beloved Stacy. This fascinating book gives so much more information on other factors that influenced the growth of the opioid crisis, what happened with Stacy's case than we could possibly fit in today's episode. So I really do recommend that you grab yourself a copy of American Pain, How a Young Felon and His Ring of Doctors Unleashed America's Deadliest Drug Epidemic. That way you can find out what happened. I love a good TEDx talk. And our guest today, Christina Dent, has a wonderful one that you can watch on YouTube. So check the show notes for a link to that. And this week's tip for how you can become a person of impact is so easy just have a conversation with someone about what you think about what my guest has to say about how to end the war on drugs for good. Then please let me know what you think. So let's hear from Christina who founded End It For Good out of her desire to invite others to listen to the voices that are directly impacted by our drug laws. She hopes that more people will explore the root causes of drug-related harm and then together we can consider a different approach. She's currently writing her own book on the research and experiences that changed her mind about the best path forward to help people thrive, even in a world where harmful drugs exist. Christina, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very, very busy job to talk with us and help educate us today. Thanks for having me, Lori. I'm really just
1: excited to be here and have this conversation together.
0: When I heard about you and the work that you do, I listened to your TEDx speech which was really, really good. And there's going to be a link in the show notes. I was so intrigued. So I went to your website, which is enditforgood.com. And I saw that you were offering a free infographic called Three Things You Need to Know About Drugs. So I made sure I got that. It's very eye-opening. I encourage everybody to go on the website and get that. And point number two really, really gels with one of the things I want to talk about today. And it says criminalizing drugs fuels the opioid overdose epidemic. So give us a story from the work that you've done, the people you've worked with, that can really help us understand that better. Mm -hmm.
1: So I think we kind of look at what we see on the news related to, let's say, fentanyl overdoses. And it's really easy to kind of just zoom in on fentanyl and say, well, that's that's the bad guy right there. It's just this particular drug. What I learned as part of my kind of journey that I came to as someone who had previously supported these really tough approaches to drugs and began rethinking that, wanting to try to learn how we could handle that better. When we talk about the overdose epidemic, what we're really talking about is a contamination epidemic. So the vast majority, almost 90 percent of overdoses now are fentanyl involved. That's not people who got fentanyl at the hospital from their doctor because they're a cancer patient. These are people who are using drugs that they bought on the street. They're contaminated. They don't know what's in those drugs. And what they think is going to get them high ends up killing them. It could be for a variety of reasons. One person might use one drug and it just gets them high. Another person might use the exact same thing and it might be too much. Everybody's body chemistry is different. What you have ingested previously can have an impact on it. So whether you've been drinking alcohol that night before you take the drug can greatly increase the impact of the drugs that you use. So this was really brought home to me by a father who contacted us and was telling us his story. His son had struggled with an addiction for a number of years. They had tried everything they could to try to help their son. And their son ended up passing away after he used drugs that were contaminated. It was too much for his system to process, and that he ended up overdosing and passed away from that overdose that was a fentanyl-involved overdose. So I think that's a a big key that we have to take away from what's happening today. A lot of harmful things were going on in the last 10 years related to prescribing and in some cases overprescribing of opioids. And yet what happened when we responded to that is that we kind of made this crackdown on legal access to opioids. And it drove thousands and thousands of people into the underground market where there's no quality control. Your dealer is happy to sell you those opioids, even if you can't get them from your doctor. And so we have all of these people who are using contaminated drugs. At the same time, those drugs are getting more and more potent because dealers are taking risk to smuggle them. And so you want the biggest punch in the smallest package. And so we have this kind of dual disaster of access to legal opioids is being restricted, but the underground market is becoming more and more potent, more and more contaminated, and thus more and more deadly. And we have what has happened today with our overdose crisis, which is lots of people dying from contamination, We think about the solutions to that. They're really hard. Those are hard solutions because we simultaneously don't want people getting too much from their doctors and we don't want them using drugs on the street and overdosing and dying from contamination. That I think is where this this question arises for us on what's the best middle path forward that we can find where we can prevent people from dying from contamination and we can also protect them from getting too much maybe from a doctor that will not be helpful to their health.
0: It is a really tough situation, which means it's going to be tough to come up with with really good answers. But I noticed something when I was on your website getting that wonderful infographic that this information came from. There's a quote I want to read. Not sure you agree with a health-centered approach to drugs instead of a criminal justice one? That's okay. Join us for respectful dialogue. I just thought, wow, wow. We've really lost that approach. Even in churches, I think, people get Mm -hmm. the attitude that, well, if you don't agree with me, you're in league with the devil. So, you know, how do you deal with those kind of attitudes to be able to reach people with your message?
1: So when I kind of went through this journey of learning, I ended up changing my own mind in favor of a health-centered approach to drugs, shifting away from using the criminal justice system to handle drug use, addiction. I wanted to invite other people to consider that same journey. So I'm conservative and I'm a Christian. And so I knew I I had lived the challenge of rethinking how we approach drugs and how hard that was for me, how many questions I had, how vulnerable it felt, because it's really vulnerable to consider changing your mind about something. So I hosted a book discussion with a couple of people, mostly family, mixed with a few people who had commented on social media posts that I had started posting in this kind of early journey. And we got together, there were 12 of us, and we discussed this book called Chasing the Scream, and it's by the author Johan Hari. It was the most helpful resource that I came across on my journey to try to understand what was happening with drugs and addiction. So we got together and we discussed this book and the way that we did it was I didn't know enough at that point to be able to sort of lead something or do a presentation on something and so we just gathered together and everybody got an opportunity to share what they thought about the ideas in the book and it was really powerful it was incredible to see you know I'm I'm born and raised in Jackson Mississippi I've lived here my whole life and so that's where we were having this discussion so we're kind of in the epicenter of Bible Belt uh, when you looked around the room, it was mostly conservative Christians who were there. And yet we were having this really respectful, interesting conversation about ideas that most of us had never considered before, moving away from prohibition towards legal regulation, towards a health-centered approach to addiction instead of arresting people. And it just felt like there's really something magical happening here, offering people a way to engage that allows them to end up wherever they end up. Maybe they come to the discussion and they decide, you know what, I, I think what we have now is the best we're going to get. And that's what I want to continue to support. Maybe they say, you know, I could get on board with not arresting people who are using drugs, but I'm definitely not on board with changing anything related to how people access drugs. I feel like in some ways we... I, stumbled into this model and we have continued that model today. So even though now we are a nonprofit, we have six team members, we do this full time. We have continued that model hosting events all across the state where now I go and give a presentation, but it's a two hour event and only 30 minutes of it is actually our content that we're presenting to people. The other hour and a half of that event, Lori, is people sharing their perspective, people who came to the event So we will have maybe 100 people in the room and we'll pass a microphone around. Every single person who attends that event gets one minute to share what they think about the ideas we presented. And not everyone chooses to share, but a lot of people do. And so we're very clear. You can say that you disagree. You can say you agree. You can say you've never thought about it before and you don't know what you think. You can say that you think I'm crazy. As long as you say it respectfully. You can have whatever opinion you have, and yet we can have this really respectful, amazing dialogue and learn from each other. And in the evening, having our minds opened, having food for thought, and being able to continue
0: that respectful dialogue afterwards. How amazing is that? Because it seems to me that there's a lot of denial about how widespread this problem is especially in churches. I think we like to think that, well, nobody here has that problem. We live in a beautiful community. Nobody in our community has that problem. But that's just simply not true, is it? Every church, every community is struggling with this, whether they realize it or not. Somebody in their circle of influence is really having a hard time with this. How do we, as you know, members of our own congregations, how do we start a dialogue like you've been able to do? Hmm. That's
1: a good question. And I'm glad you brought that up, particularly how it impacts people in churches. That's close to my heart as a, as a Christian also. It reminds me of a woman who contacted me and she wanted to share. She had heard me speak on another podcast and she wanted to share about their journey with their son who was using marijuana. She was scared that he was going to get arrested. Didn't want him using it anyway, just because it's not healthy for teenagers to be using, of course. And she was also a Christian. She was a homeschooling mom, also close to my heart. I was homeschooled kindergarten through high school. And it was really tragic to hear kind of just the, the struggle of what do you do with this and how do you find community that will support you in it? Because so much of our wording And our responses about people who use drugs is very shame based and very much that this is a bad person. So if you are a parent whose child is struggling, how do you not take that as people saying you failed as a parent? If you were a better parent, your loved one, your child would not be struggling. And that's just not true. If we want to find our way out of the addiction crisis that we're in, the way to do that is not to tell all the parents of all the people that they did everything wrong. I'm a parent. I'm doing all kinds of things wrong. I'm trying my best. And I kind of think, you know, maybe one of the most helpful things I can do for my sons is to just help them see that therapy is great. And if they need that at some point, that's totally fine. And I will not be offended. You know, if they're getting (laughs) whatever scars they have from their childhood, I'm sorry about. And please go find healing for them in, in helpful ways. A stat that I heard that was just so surprising to me, and I think is so relevant for what you're talking about related to the church, is that For people who have a loved one struggling with addiction, the average amount of time that passes before they tell anyone outside of their immediate family what's happening is seven years. So when you look around at your church... Okay, that shocks even me. It is shocking. But it makes sense. There is so much stigma surrounding addiction. And in many ways, we think about the way that that stigma impacts things like people's jobs, people's educational opportunities... It's not just maybe that they don't trust their faith community to hold that burden with them. It could be that they're, they're scared for how that could impact them. Would their husband lose his job if his work knew that he was struggling with an opioid addiction, even if he's able to do his job functionally right now? There's lots of other problems that can arise in a person's life because you can't control everyone's response to what's happening in your family. And so I think when we look around in our church pews and we see people all dressed up on a Sunday morning, to know that there's a good chance that a good number of them are walking with a loved one through an addiction, the best way that we can give them a safe place to tell that story when they're ready, if they want to, is to proactively be saying things that help people know you are a safe person to talk to about it. Being that kind of trustworthy person, not perpetuating that stigma and talking about, you know, well, yeah, I guess he just, you know, kind of black sheep of the family. People hear that and immediately they go, that means that she thinks my son is the black sheep of the family. And I know my son's not. I know he's a wonderful human being who is deeply struggling. And so I think we don't recognize how all around us people are looking, they're listening for how would people respond if they knew the truth of what's going on in my family. So the time for you to start exemplifying sort of that Christ-like response is long before anyone ever tells you that they have a loved one struggling. You are creating the kind of space, the kind of culture in your church community that makes it safe for a person to be there and it makes it safe at whatever point for them to say, can I share this with you? That's what you and I can do today. We don't have to wait for someone to tell us. We can start thinking about how could I let people know that I am going to be compassionate about this, that I'm not going to blame them for this, that I'm not going to tell them all the things they did wrong. And that's why this has happened. How can I be a place of of grace and of mercy and of hope for other people? And what are the ways I can start communicating that right now?
0: I think that is so wonderful. And you you really just answered my next two questions before I even asked them. So thank you for that. I love the way you said it to be known as being a safe person. It's not enough to just be a safe person if nobody knows that. And so that means we have to talk to people. We have to open up a little bit more and really return to community that i think some some faith-based communities have lost. You know, it's come in, I'm going to sing, you know, my three songs, I'm going to hear a 30-minute sermon. They know when they're out of there. Yeah. Hang around. Come early. Talk to people. Yeah. And like you said, don't wait till you know there's a problem because somebody might not ever tell you there's a problem but there's got to be some signs so if if i've been moved by what i've heard today i feel this call that this is a mission field and this is a mission field if it's one that i feel called to join what can i be looking for to say there's a family that might be struggling
1: that's a good question so i think i might reframe what they're looking for and i think i would start looking for opportunities to to just put out into the world the way that you think about these issues. So, you know, when I have shared my testimony in church, maybe it's my testimony of coming to faith, you know, I'll also talk a little bit about the work that I do now. And I might, it might be as simple as saying, I really just, through our experience as a foster family, I came to believe that really addiction is a is a complex health crisis And I want to invite people to consider not using the criminal justice system to address that. Arrest really doesn't tend to help people, but it can put up lots of barriers for them and really break down families. And even something as as short as that offers people the opportunity. And it's amazing how often it happens that people will come up to me afterwards or I'll see someone in a grocery store and they'll say, now, this is someone who has never commented on any post I've ever made on social media. I don't know anything about their connection to the issue. And when they'll see me in person, they'll say, I really appreciated that because, and then they go into something. A lady that my husband grew up with, who's closer to his parents' age, came up to me and said, thank you so much. My mother struggled with a methamphetamine addiction when I was a child. And this was, you know, decades ago. She said, nobody understood what was happening. And our family was just ostracized as soon as people learned about it. This was someone I never knew had any connection to the issue at all. And she still carries that weight of a little girl who saw what happened to her family as the as the public, as the community found out what her mother was struggling with and did not understand it. This recently happened again, where a woman told me afterwards that her son was in prison and you, you would see this woman on a Sunday morning. This was in a church that she told it to me. And so you see her on a Sunday morning and think, well, here's just a nice Southern lady who is, you know in the the later years of her life, just here in church. And yet you have no idea what's actually happening in her world and the journey that she's walking. If you think addiction is stigmatized, having a child in in prison, that's probably a triple stigma of addiction because we just have this immediate sense of they must not be safe. They must have done something terrible. and And most of us, certainly I did not have any clue that you can end up in prison for just possessing a drug, a drug that you're addicted to. And certainly mm-hmm. that's not healthy. Certainly you shouldn't be doing that. But it wasn't because you went and assaulted somebody necessarily. It can just be because you were in possession of, of this drug that you've developed an addiction to. I think those those opportunities when we're asking for prayer for things and we tend to leave things like that out. We, we kind of stay on the periphery, the easier things maybe that, that there are to talk about. Yes. And I, I just found people really, they are drawn to the authenticity of even just sharing, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with what I just saw happening, let's say right here in Mississippi, where we have a dramatically increasing rate of people incarcerated on a, on a drug charge. Just talking about that, that's, that's concerning to me because I'm really thinking about What happens to all of those families? You know, we've got 4,500 people just in the state of Mississippi who are in prison on a nonviolent drug charge. What about those families? What about those children? As somebody who wants stable families and children growing up in the home with their parents, not all those people are going to be able to be healthy parents, but there's probably a lot of them that they, they need help. They need maybe treatment. Certainly they need support and community and help building a a thriving life. So there's just so many small ways that we can just start to put out there that the way we think about addiction is through compassion and health rather than bad people who are just doing bad things because they don't care about anyone else.
0: And being a book nerd myself, I love how your journey in a way started with just having a book discussion. Yeah. With other people. Yeah. So I mean, anybody can start a book club and I'm sure Most churches would say, sure, you could use this room on this night if for some reason you're not able to host people in your home. How many problems could we solve if we would all just talk together reasonably? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I want to thank you again, Christina, for joining us today and just sharing not only your story, but the amazing amounts of research you've done, the work you've put in and, and really the, the hope and the encouragement, I think, your work gives to all of us where we could say, you know, I could do that, too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, thank you. It's such an honor to be with you. And I, I love what you just said about the book club, because I think people do feel kind of like, how would I start talking about this? I don't know what to say. You don't have to know what to say. Just find a book and invite people to come and discuss that. You can use Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. People in Mississippi have really appreciated that. It's well-researched. My own book is coming out this fall, which particularly will address kind of this issue related to faith and family values and all of these other pieces that maybe are not part of Chasing the Scream. There are great books out there, even if you just do a book that's solely on addiction, trying to understand addiction. Gabor Matei has a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts that has been incredibly helpful for many people to understand the root causes of addiction and why some of our responses don't work. It's one thing to be frustrated because our responses don't work, but it's very eye-opening when you go, oh, now I understand why that doesn't work. And that's where you can find real solutions once you understand those root causes of harm and you can find the true path to healing.
0: Thank you again and all those wonderful resources you've mentioned. Check out the show notes. I will have links to all of that. So your work is amazing. I want to keep following you and let me know when your book comes out this fall. And we may just have to have you back. Oh, I'd love it. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. The Bible verse that I want to talk about and explore this week is is really pretty dead on. And so let me read it to you. It's from the CEV and it's 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So let's talk about keeping ourselves sober in the sense of being clear-minded because I think that concept really applies to each and every one of us. We don't like to think about this, but We do need to constantly remind ourselves that the enemy of our souls is actively seeking for ways that he can destroy us, like the lions that you see on the Discovery Channel. They don't chase after the strongest gazelle in the herd. They want to find one who is weak, who is apart from the support of the herd, and isn't able to notice the danger they are in until it is much too late. I want to remind everybody of something that I say a lot when I'm giving safety information to people. Criminals are looking for the easiest targets they can find. They don't want problems. They want to give you problems. We have to be watchful, like scripture says, and that is very hard to do when our senses are dulled and we allow ourselves to be distracted. And yes, I said allowed ourselves, because we can learn to focus on what we really need to and block out all the rest, like service dogs do. I've put a link to a video of dogs being trained to ignore loud noises, toys, even snacks, so they can protect the person they're going to be caring for. And it kind of made me think, maybe we need the same training to become the best service people we can be. And just for fun, I've also put a link to a service dog in training who maybe we all look like at one time or another. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some of my earlier ones. You'll wanna hear from the amazing guests who gave me fantastic information. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And you can do that by sharing this episode. If you've got an extra moment, subscribe to the podcast and give me a five-star rating with a nice review. And that will help even more people discover what we're talking about here at The Unlovely Truth. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.